six times. I shot him in the heart. He's not human. Universal Pictures presents Halloween 2. More of the night he came home. Who is it? Nothing within him, neither conscience nor reason that wasn't even remotely human. Halloween 2. More of the night he came home. It's Steve, and tis the season. I hope you are all having a spooky October so far. Last October, I released my full ranking of the Halloween franchise, up to Halloween 2018 as well as a review of John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. Three years later, in 1981, the most sequely sequel of all sequels, Halloween 2, was released. What do you think the ratings look like? In this section, I like to take a guess at what both scores on Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb's score is before revealing all of those scores. Let's start today with the Rotten Tomatoes audience score for Halloween 2. For those unaware, the Rotten Tomatoes system is not necessarily a rating of how much people like a movie, but instead, whether or not they liked it. My guess for the audience score is going to be that 73% liked the movie. This is a dart throw. I don't have a good beat on this movie's reception overall. For the Rotten Tomatoes critic score, which I think will be mixed, but that it probably gets like a bit of a break based on how well received the original was. With that in mind, I'm thinking it'll be higher than the audience score, so I'm going to guess 78% of the critics liked Halloween 2. And for my last guess, the IMDb score, which differs from Rotten Tomatoes as it is a rating of how much people liked the movie, on a scale of 1 to 10. In my experience, Folks who don't like Halloween 2 don't think it's horrible. So, somewhere in the mid to high 6s feels about right, and I'm going to guess 6.8 out of 10. Now, let's find out how I did. For the Rotten Tomatoes audience, I guessed 73%, which is feeling a little bit high right now, but I'm going to keep the guess as is. And the actual percentage of the audience who liked the movie after over 50,000 votes, is currently sitting at 63%. From the Rotten Tomatoes critics, I guessed higher than the audience, thinking the critics would feel some sort of allegiance to the successor of Halloween. Boy, oh boy, was I wrong about that. My guess was 78%. The reality of it is that the critic score, based on 42 critics' opinions, currently sits at 31%. I should have given the critics a little more credit. That's what I get for judging them. Total miss on that guess. That leaves us with the IMDb score, which I guessed is a 6.8 out of 10. The actual IMDb score with 80,263 submissions is currently a 6.5 out of 10. The distribution of scores is pretty even across all ages and genders. I take those three numbers, and as far as a recommendation goes, I see a movie that isn't great but provides enough oomph that it is probably worth a watch for horror fans. However, for those who are picky or on the fence with their horror genre, this is distinctly in the slasher subgenre, and it offers little beyond that. 
If you're here to determine if this is a movie you'd like to watch, I have more analysis coming up to help make that determination. So let's skedaddle on over to some of my overall thoughts and general information about... A dark house, a woman alone, a man with a knife. It all began with Halloween, but the night he came home is not over yet. Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, Halloween 2. A Halloween treat. The trick is to survive. Halloween 2. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. Halloween 2 is 1 hour and 32 minutes long. It is a horror film, and it is rated R. It very much earns that rating. There is a significant amount of gore, plenty of needles piercing skin, and the nudity is exploitative. Although, it is not excessive. As far as drugs go, I don't recall any non-medical usage. The TV cut is definitely fine for teenagers and even preteens. However, assuming you can't get your hands on that, I think 15 and up is a safe baseline. So, what is the plot synopsis? I liked the one that popped up on the top of Google, so here it is. After failing to kill stubborn survivor Lori, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and taking a bullet or six from former psychiatrist... Dr. Sam Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, Michael Myers, played by Dick Warlock, has followed Lori to the Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, where she has been admitted for Myers' attempt on her life. The institution proves to be particularly suited to serial killers, however, as Myers cuts, stabs, and slashes his way through hospital staff to reach his favorite victim. I'll get a little deeper into some of these details later, But the short of it is, although John Carpenter was involved in the making of this movie, he had other projects going on at the same time. So Deborah Hill, who was very involved in the first movie, was once again heavily involved while Rick Rosenthal took over as the director. One thing I noticed, not only from the movie itself, but also in Rick's commentary, is that a lot of the things he used in this film and describes this film to be like are exactly the same as the first movie. I'm not saying that Rick tried to take credit for anything, but he definitely didn't give any credits in the commentary. Outside of saying that he wanted this movie to feel like a continuation of the first, Rick does not bring up Carpenter's movie, which I found odd at first. Then as I learned more about things, it made more sense and I have an entire segment at the end of this episode focused around that. I will divulge some of that information throughout when necessary. You could probably puzzle things together on your own if you take note of some of the things that I say along the way, but I will bring it all together, all in one big speculation at the end. For now, the question is, how well did this movie turn out? How well did Rick pull off his continuation of the first movie? I think that this movie feels like a continuation of the first, as Rick intended. However, there are some issues with that, and to be fair, Many of those issues are not directorial issues. I'm talking inherent issues with picking up where we left off. Those issues are plot and characters along with their respective development. We already saw Lori's story arc, yet the story continues. Then there is the issue that although this movie mimics the vibe, lighting, atmosphere, and style of the first pretty darn well, it still feels like it is someone attempting to mimic someone else's style more than anything else. It all feels heavy-handed. That includes the gore and violence, especially when comparing it to the first. Liking or disliking that is a personal taste thing, 
but it is a stark difference in terms of the continuation factor. Halloween 2 has always felt like a slow and long drag to me, although I appreciate a certain attention to detail when it comes to getting people from one location to the next and the motivations behind those things, it all becomes monotonous and a little too explained in Halloween 2, which adds to a choppiness that this movie has, especially when combined with an excessive intercutting of scenes. The movie loses any flow, and that's going to be, in part, a too-many-cooks-in-the-kitchen issue, which I will cover later. There is also an issue of too many unnecessary scenes. Some of it feels like fluff, and some of it is due to this too-many-cooks issue. Along the same line, there are a few moments that feel very arthouse or college film student-y that don't mesh well with the other hour and 28 minutes of this movie. Not that I hate them on their own. Which brings me to a general feeling of mixed when it comes to this movie. A point that I think comes through in my analysis of this movie is very well stated via executive producer Irwin Yablins in the making of extra feature of the movie. Here he is. As far as I'm concerned, the film was uh, was pretty much Pavlovian. They they tried to uh, <laughs> they tried to get the same emotions uh, in in the formulaic way that Halloween one did. The difference is that Halloween one was original. And it was innovative and creative, and Halloween 2 was, by its very nature, imitative and pedestrian. The connection between Halloween 1 and all the sequels, in my opinion, is, uh, is invalid. Irwin goes on to say that he was surprised that Halloween 2 came out as well as it did, which, despite how it sounds, was definitely meant as a compliment. If you were to turn off all of my lights in my house, break in, and put a knife to my throat, demanding that I tell you, out of five stars, what would I rate the original Halloween 2 from 1981? I would blurt out 2.7? And as you dashed off into the night, then I'd shout out, wait! I'm going to change that to a 2.3 out of five stars, but that's all just like my opinion, man. Let's find out what others thought. Do you think the fans and the critics gave it some props reviews or what? Diving right in, let's start with the good, specifically the good user reviews. I struggled to find good and quick reviews, so mostly I'm just going to read the titles of people's reviews instead. With a 7 out of 10, user sleepin' underscore dragon says, not as good as the first, but a worthy follow-up. And with an 8 out of 10, user Lee underscore Eisenberg also called it a quote-unquote worthy follow-up. In a pair of 7 out of 10s, user Tweakums says, a more violent but less scary sequel. While user Quinoa1984 says, just as good as part 1. Then we've got user Jacob John Taylor 1, who gave it a 10 out of 10, and he says, or she, the second one is better than the first. And let's just end this on Jacob John Taylor's full review. This is one of the best sequels ever made. This is horror fantasy because Michael is a warlock. The original Halloween is a good movie, but this one is better. It is scarier. This one of the scariest movies ever made. It take place one the same night as the first movie. It pick up right where the first on left off. This movie has a great storyline. It also has great acting. It also has great special effects. If you do not get scared of this movie, then no movie will scare you. 
This is the best Halloween movie. Jamie Lee Curtis is a great actress. Tony Moran is a great actor. Donald Pleasance was a great actor. This is great movie. See it. Jacob John Taylor won, got his wires crossed with Michael being a warlock. He is played by a warlock, not a Moran. Let's move on to the good critics' reviews. From R.L. Schaefer of IGN DVD, who gave the movie a 7 out of 10 and says, Halloween 2 isn't a knockout sequel, but it's a solid, if slightly slow, follow-up to the original Halloween classic. And let's end these good reviews with a surprise showing from Ken Hank of Mountain Express. Ken gave it a 3 out of 5, and he says, Might have been better than the first one if it hadn't been tampered with after Rosenthal shot it. That is a big hint as to what much of the drama that I'll cover is about. Let's take a look-see at the bad user reviews, starting off with a 4 out of 10 from user Alexander-95350, who titled his review, Run, Jamie, which I found humorous and I have the exact same critique. Then user I underscore Alurophile gave it a 2 out of 10 and titled their review, Two-Word Review? Oh no. That was five words, dude. In the one-star reviews, we've got titles like Oh, let the nightmare end. Utterly pointless. Boo. And hilarious. Brought to us from users Moonspiner55, Harry Planquette 14, Transient-2, and M. Dolan21. Now for some bad critics reviews. From Matt Brunson of Creative Loafing, who gave the movie two out of four loafs, and says, The script is fairly routine, and Jamie Lee Curtis has too little to do this time around, but the hospital setting proves to be a sound choice for a locale. Let's wrap these movie reviews up with Tim Brayton of Antagony and Ecstasy, who gave it a 4 out of 10 and says, Does the worst thing any sequel can ever do, it retroactively taints the original and makes it less interesting. I don't think I talk about that, but I know he's not the only one to say so. And I agree with his sentiment. Hey dude, sorry it's me again. I was just wondering, could you tell me more about the movie? Welcome to the walkthrough where I will go through the beats of the movie as I analyze and set up the reasonings behind my scores in the technical ratings section. This portion is lengthier and will include some spoilers. I understand this may not be everyone's cup of tea. If not, now is a good time to check out the timestamps I've provided in the description to jump ahead. I have also bookmarked each section in this episode on my hosting platform, but I'm not sure if that transfers over to any, all, or some podcast platforms that you may use. I watched the movie six times, four times for this review, once to take notes, once for each of the two different commentary tracks, and another time so I could simply watch without distraction. There is also around two hours of extras that I went through to provide as much extra and interesting information as I could. I would do my best to credit who is speaking when using audio clips outside of the movie itself. The commentary tracks used featured, in one of them, the director Rick Rosenthal along with actor Leo Rossi who plays the rowdier and naughtier of the two first responders who I refer to as medics most often. The other commentary track features a stunt coordinator and actor of Michael, Dick Warlock, along with a gentleman named Rob G, who, if I recall correctly, is basically a historian slash superfan of the Halloween franchise. 
I totally apologize if I misremembered who Rob G is. However, if I try to search Rob G Halloween special features, all I get is Rob Zombie stuff. That is plenty of boilerplate material. The movie opens up in Haddonfield, Illinois on October 31st, 1978 to the upbeat and optimistic sound of the barbershop slash doo-wop style mashup from the Cordettes, a number one billboard bestseller in stores, a number one most played by disc jockeys, and the number one most played in jukeboxes from 1954 to 1955, that song? A peculiar choice given not only the vibe of the song, but also the meaning behind it. Asking for the folkloric Sandman to bring a perfect male specimen into the life of a woman in need of some true lovin'. As we know, Michael is referred to as the Boogeyman in Halloween, so there is a very sophomoric link between the Sandman who puts people to sleep and inspires beautiful dreams, and Boogeymen, who are a race of mischievous and dangerous creatures that are used to frighten children into behaving well. The side effect being that, while at their most vulnerable, this thought of a boogeyman keeps children awake at night in concern that the boogeyman is going to crawl out from under their bed and get them. Then there's also Sam Hain, which is correctly pronounced Sa Win, and I'll try to remember that, but probably won't because I just learned that fact. Part of the lore of Sa Win is that nature is asleep, so I guess you could draw another faintly clever parallel there. That said, I understand the usage of this song as a paradox of sorts in regards to the relationship between Michael and Laurie, and maybe even Laurie's physical state in this movie, but it does not work more than it does work. So that is a negative for the sound design for me. In a partial recreation of the final moments of Halloween with new music played over it, we hear synthesized organs hauntingly come to a chaotic conclusion as we once again see the moment where Michael rises up from the ground behind Lori Strode and attacks her one last time before Dr. Loomis empties seven bullets into Michael, causing him to fall off of the second-story balcony onto the front lawn. Fun fact, it was the back lawn in the first movie. Another interesting tidbit is that in the original movie, it was six bullets. And throughout this movie, Loomis says he shot Michael six times. Just a little oopsie there. Dr. Loomis looks over the edge of the balcony only to see that Michael Myers' body is missing. In disbelief, Loomis inspects the ground with his hand, and as we see blood dripping off of his hand, Loomis and the audience have proof that Michael Myers had indeed been shot. Loomis gets up off of his knee and looks into the emptiness of the night in fear as he instructs a neighbor to call the police. You don't know what death is. And this is where the story of Halloween 2 picks up. The music swells as the title sequence flashes on screen. 
think this is an effective and efficient cold open to set the tone for the rest of the movie. Very similarly to the first movie, we see an iconic pumpkin off to the side of a stark black screen with the credits written in a very pumpkin orange color. This time, however, as the camera slowly zooms into the pumpkin, it splits open, revealing a terrifying skull from behind or inside of the pumpkin. The innards of the pumpkin almost take on a very fleshy, soft tissue-like texture. Great job by the cinematographers and the production team with that effect. In the soundtrack, we hear a soft blare from the horns section as we get about seven minutes into the movie. The horns fade into complete silence. As the camera becomes a point-of-view perspective of someone going past a garage into a back alley where we can hear the sounds of some children still out trick-or-treating. And in what will become the first of many attempts for a jump scare, a dog signals that we are viewing the world through the eyes of a dangerous man, Michael Myers. Police sirens can be heard coming near from a distance. Sticking to the shadows through Michael's eyes, we continue down the alley, away from all of the activity. Suddenly, Dr. Loomis shows up at the other end of the alley as the sounds of those sirens come to a halt right next to him. Loomis expresses in a distressed tone multiple times over how he shot Michael, that Michael isn't human. Is that Arnold Schwarzenegger? Averting being seen, Michael dips off to the side, out of the alley, and into an unsuspecting neighbor's backyard. In a very voyeuristic shot, we witness an elderly woman going about her normal nightly activities in her nightgown. How about mustard? The camera changes to a traditional viewpoint as we are transported to Harold's living room and see that he has fallen asleep, mid-sandwich waiting. Mrs. Elrod, Harold's wife, walks into the living room to ask him if he's sleeping. She begins to watch the movie on the TV as she's not in a hurry anymore to finish that sandwich, and we go back to the point-of-view shot entering their home. A breaking bullet interrupts Harold's movie to inform citizens of a crazed man on the loose. Unfortunately, for the Elrods, Michael is already eyeing up the knife that was intended to cut Harold's late-night snack in half. Or, or quarters, maybe. I'm not sure what kind of guy Harold is, but if it is up to his wife, I imagine Norma is a quarters woman. A bloodied hand comes from behind the camera and grabs the knife from the cutting board. The breaking news bulletin comes to an end. Bundy, live. We witness Michael Myers a stealthy retreat from the kitchen. Don't worry, that is just Norma finding out that her knife is missing and was replaced with a puddle of blood, which is now also on her hand. With that in mind, in this first 10 minutes, both a dog and Mr. and Mrs. Elrod have escaped what seemingly would have been imminent deaths in the first movie. This signals to the audience that Michael's motives have... Well, they've changed from the first movie. 
in which he was an indiscriminate killer with no motive, to a Myers who has some unfinished business. A vengeful Myers with an agenda, so to speak. What is that agenda, though? I want you to remember that first bit of commentary and this upcoming scene for later on in this review, because right now, we are about to walk into a contradiction, and although it will hurt some of my scoring for the movie, why it exists is interesting and relevant. We now see Michael going between two houses as he arrives to the next-door neighbor's house where he happens upon a younger lady, and this distracts Michael. She is notified by her friend on the phone that there is a crazed man before meeting her demise. Take notice of how much that scene sounds like many scenes from Carpenter's movie. And this is the last point in the movie where I really feel Halloween 1 vibes outside of one other scene. This kill is random in the context of this movie, but as a continuation from the first movie, it's our final thread before Halloween 2's aura is cemented. Interesting note, Dick Warlock agrees with me. He also thinks the scene feels out of place, and he speculated that it may have been added because they needed an extra 90 seconds for the television time slots. With a splattering of blood on this woman's face, the movie transitions down the street to the Strode's residence, where police are taking witness statements and investigating. Alive, but not well, Lori is put into an ambulance and brought to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, which is actually described as a clinic. I bring that up because that description helps give credence to a chief complaint many have about how empty the hospital is throughout this movie. Something I don't mind and that works in the movie's favor. Through some useless exposition, we are tipped off that one of the medics more or less knows Lori. We transition to Lori arriving at the hospital via ambulance and the movie spends an inordinate amount of time introducing us to a mom bringing her kid into the hospital. In this scene, it is revealed that this woman's kid has a razor through his tongue, a play on the fears of strangers putting things in children's candy to harm them. Many people, including the director, seem to like this scene. I, however, find it to, to be useless, and my thinking is that A, it was included simply because the director wanted to include it, or, and, B, its placement was such that it could be used as a TV commercial break moment, and in my recollection, it was. We return from commercials to see Lori's being brought into the hospital, and it is clear she is in shock and almost comatose. During this, the camera work is splitting time between a point-of-view shot from her perspective and normal camera placement. To me, this feels like an attempt at creating emotion and ambiance while also being very jumpy, which is something the director admits to doing intentionally. There is a lot of jumping from scene to scene and location to location, which is going to be a knock to the cinematography's score. The mom and her child get the runaround from the front desk. Fill out this form. Someone will be with you in a moment. Oh, but we should see a doctor right away. He's with a patient. Would you please wait in room eight? Oh. Is that true, nurse lady? This doctor makes it. Uh, he's been at the country club. I think he's drunk. Oh, great. Clearly, Lori will be under the utmost care with a caring and, most of all, alert staff. Lori has become much more alert than she was moments earlier. And in record time, the doctor has returned from the country club to help take care of her. For a second time, Laurie expresses she does not want to meet Mr. Sandman, a.k.a. the Boogeyman. She does not want to be put to sleep, but the staff sedates her and, sedated, she shall remain. Well, sort of. And that inconsistency will be an issue for this movie, but it is one that we'll speak on more later. 
As Lori relaxes, we cut to Dr. Loomis riding along with the sheriff as they search the streets for Michael. Loomis is just as intense as the first movie, but he is now more hysterical and on edge as he fiddles with his gun, ensuring he is locked and loaded. Will you put that thing away? Couldn't have shot him six times. You think I'm lying, Sheriff? I think you missed him. No man could take six slugs. I tell you, this isn't a man. <laughs> look out, slow down. Right, over, right. the, over there, look, look, look. Loomis spots a man walking down the sidewalk near some young trick-or-treaters, a man wearing the same exact disguise as Michael Myers. Which is weird. In all of the chaos, Loomis is about to shoot the disguised man. The one carrying a pillowcase for trick-or-treating. When, suddenly, a police car comes out of nowhere and smashes into the individual and hauls him right into the side of a parked van. A large and unnecessary explosion ensues, burning the masked individual to a crisp. Fun fact, Dick Warlock was actually the driver for that stunt, and you can see his face in the movie as he also plays a cop at the scene of this accident. Keeping the intensity up, the sheriff demands that Loomis identify if the burning individual is indeed Michael Myers, and as Loomis watches the body come to a crisp char, he is unable to answer. A concerned and unsure look comes across his face. Loomis drags his hand down his forehead and he squeezes the corners of his eyes. Is he trying to get a better look? Or does he not believe that the body type of this burning individual fits that of Michael Myers? Before we can get an answer to that question, another cop arrives on scene and informs Sheriff Brackett of three other bodies found. found three bodies. Where? Across the street from the Doyle house. Three kids. One's Annie. The two officers rush to their vehicle, and without invite, Loomis decides he is a part of this too, and he also hops into the back of the cruiser. Transition to the hospital as we see the injured child and his mother leaving. And here's the third reason I think these two characters exist, to help show or explain why the hospital is so empty. Or maybe this is another good time for a commercial break. Immediately, we transition to see a security guard and two staff members of the hospital, all distracted by the shocking news on TV. We see a few establishing shots of different staff going through the empty halls of the hospital. Transition to the medic from the ambulance checking in on Lori. Come on, Jimmy. It would appear someone has a crush. I can just have to drink or anything. I'm gonna cook. Transition scene, and we see a news reporter on the scene of the three dead bodies as he reports that Michael Myers was believed to have burned to death. The sheriff, deputy, and Loomis arrive on scene as a body is being brought out of the house. Sheriff Brackett pulls the cover down to identify the body. I uh, have to uh, go and tell my wife before somebody else does. Go on home, Lee. Going home. I'll take care of everything. Damn you. Sorry. What have you done? I haven't done anything. You let him out! 
I didn't let him out. I, I gave orders for him to be restrained. Loomis brings up the possibility that it wasn't Michael who burned, implying that the deputy and himself should continue their search until they are absolutely positive. You're talking about him like he's some kind of animal. Our first wonderful Loomis monologue. He was my patient for 15 years. It became an obsession with me until I realized that there was nothing within him, neither conscience nor reason, that wasn't even remotely human. An hour ago, I stood up and, and fired six shots into him. He just got up and walked away. I am talking about the real possibility that he is still out there. Where'd they take the body? Coroner's office. Get a dentist to meet me there in half an hour. I do believe I caught a little error in this scene. The paramedics appear to be at both of this location and at the hospital at the exact same time period. That said, the time frame of this movie and the events within is or are a little funky and almost positively not perfectly linear. I had to laugh while watching the commentary when Leo Rossi asks Rick how long the span of this movie goes over, and Rick's answer, after pausing for a moment, was one night. It's really impossible to put a proper amount of hours on, especially when you consider the amount of time taken up in the night during the first movie. It doesn't feel like all of this could have taken place over one night especially when you consider how populated the streets still are as the night goes on. We then transition to two unknown young women as they walk to their vehicle. One of them needs a ride home, and the other, it appears, will be late for her shift at the hospital due to this inconvenience. A promise is a promise, though, and our nurse will just have to be late and deal with the consequences. Ultimately, this is a remnant of a storyline, if I can even call it that, which I will talk about later. As those two pull away, a young man with a large jukebox takes over the camera's focus as he walks across the road closer and closer to the camera. Before bumping into someone, you know what that music means. And as you can tell, this is supposed to be a jump scare, but they revealed Michael Myers in the frame like a full second prior to the sting, so it really falls flat. I actually think the cinematographers would be most to blame for this scare not working. Michael's theme song soars as we follow him down the still-populated streets as folks celebrate the holiday. Shortly thereafter, the nurse arrives to the hospital late for her shift, and when she closes her door, it is revealed that so has Michael Myers. You may have noticed that Lori's location was stated on the radio, which Michael could hear thanks to the boombox boy, and I hope you could hear it too. We transition from the reveal of Michael to our medics who are now relaxing in the break room with one of the nurses. We transition to another shot of the empty halls of the hospital before we transition to the security guard who is dually distracted when, on the security camera, we witness Michael walking up to the property. To absolve the security guard of any responsibility, they also have him buzz late nurse into the building. Transition back to the break room as other medic has a conversation with a different nurse. Every other word you're saying is either hell or shit or damn. I'm sorry. I guess I just fuck up all the time. She contemplates pouring her drink over other medic before leaving right as late nurse arrives. The sexual tension is clear as late nurse indicates to not Jimmy, a.k.a. other medic, that she'll see him in her ward later. See you later. Right. Amazing grace. 
Come sit on my face. Don't make me cry. I need your pie. But why don't you just shut up, all right? That's Jimmy. Both times we've been in the break room, it's been clear that his mind is elsewhere. He's deep in thought and concerned about the events that have been unfolding around town and to Lori. I have a theory that will come up surrounding this, other than the obvious, that he likes her. Jimmy leaves the break room, headed for Lori's room, and on the way there is a smooth transition from a door closing to a point of view shot. The man behind the lens ducks into the hospital nursery as late nurse walks by. And shortly after comes the head nurse to follow up on late nurse getting yelled at for being late, which was brought up twice before and is also part of that stuff that I'll be going over later. There are a few transitions before Michael continues on and transition to Jimmy and Lori speaking. God, they should have, they should have handled it more carefully. Who? Oh. Michael Myers. Michael Myers. Yeah, he, he was the guy that was after you. In the Myers house? That little kid who killed his sister? Yeah. You'd think this might be useless exposition, given the nature of this being a continuation of the first movie. And maybe it is, but it's brought up as a setup to raise a question. Why me? In a very minor jump scare, the head nurse pops in and kicks Jimmy out of the room again. She also addresses a potential question of, what about Lori's parents? To which the answer is that they cannot get a hold of them. The movie never raised that question prior, and this is sufficient to give us an answer. But this is really just another remnant of a story thread and a larger thing that was taken out of the final cut. Stick around. I'll cover that later. The head nurse realizes the phones are no longer working and this is what tips Lori off to Michael's presence. Transition to Michael entering an unknown darkly lit room. Transition back to the head nurse who sends nurse Janet all the way down the hall to inform the security guard of the issue. Janet is forced to wait all the way down the hall while guard, um, he heads out to check on the phone lines. We head outside with the security guard, who, for some odd reason, looks inside of a dumpster, and he's seen some fresh blood. He extends his hand towards the blood to try a free sample. And we get the classic cat jumps out of the closet jump scare. No longer hungry, he decides to pass on the free sample when he notices something. The lock to the storeroom has been tampered with and is no longer locked. He checks out a closet in the storeroom, which is not locked, and jump scare? Question mark? Comedic moment? Yes, but oddly placed. When he opens the closet, a buttload of stuff just falls out on top of him. He hears a noise and follows it to another closet, which... The lock is not locked on, this time almost jumping backwards as he opens it to avoid any shit from falling on top of him. And with a nice little character touch, he flips his flashlight from one hand to the other as he clears the closet. He turns around only to be face to face with Michael right as Michael drops the hammer down on him. Janet gives up on her post as things are just taking too long. She ditches the guard and she heads back to her ward. 
That entire scene went on for an excruciatingly long five minutes and due to, well, you get it, storyline stuff that was cut, this is rather pointless. Cut scene two, Loomis at the morgue, where the teeth of the Vern victim show that he was around 17 to 18 years old, but Michael is 21. That evidence, along with a little coaxing from Dr. Loomis, is enough to convince the deputy who is now in charge to recall the search for Michael, which had been called off. Cut to the townsfolk rioting outside of the Myers household as Loomis and the deputy arrive. Then, in another Loomis monologue, he once again rehashes the events of Halloween, when Michael killed his sister. And just as Loomis does in the first, he also sets up more lore through the most riveting exposition that any actor has ever delivered. In many ways, he was the ideal patient. He, he didn't talk, he didn't cry, he didn't even move. He just waited. The staff was unprepared. They didn't know what he was. Did you know? Yeah, I knew. Mr. Hunt? Yeah, what is it, Craig? Yeah, I'm worried about Bennett Tramer. He isn't home yet. Yeah, and he left the party at 10. It's only a little after 11, boys. He was real drunk. How old is he? 17. He had that stupid mask on. All right, boys. 17. Wear your mask. Maybe we should check his dental record. Old Reservoir Road, they had a break in the elementary school, they're pretty sure it's Come on! Cut to the hospital, complete silence. Late Nurse is dispensing pills into bottles before another attempted jump scare as the buzzer outside of a patient's room goes off. She heads down to check on the patient, and right when you know she's about to get murdered by Michael Myers... It's other metal. Oh, you idiot! He convinces her to join him down in the hydrotherapy room for a nice freezing cold bath. That is an interesting fact. The water in the tub on set was freezing cold despite appearances on screen. Leo Rossi describes the site that himself and his co-actress saw as a raisin. Cut to scenes of empty hospital hallways as the theme song plays before we see Lori sleeping and having a dream about a conversation from her childhood with her mother. Why won't you ever tell me anything? I told you. I'm not your mother. With her mother. I told you. With her mother. With her mother. I'm not with her mother. And your mother. Yay! Lori then witnesses herself as a very young child visiting a less young Michael Myers at a facility. This dream wakes her up and she appears to have a realization before she nods back off to bed. Cut to the medical facility's hydrotherapy tub while other medic watches late nurse get undressed behind frosted glass. She puts a towel on, then she washes the tub, only to take the towel off. They start to get funky when she remarks that it's hot in the tub, just before we see Michael Myers turn the temperature up to the max. I'm not kidding. It's too hot in here now, bud. That is other medic's name, Bud. Why don't you go check? It's cold out there. A raisin. It can get cold in here. 
brazen. Gotcha. Late nurse can't handle the heat. She retreats from the tub while Bud checks the gauges. As she dabs herself dry, we witness Bud's silent murder through frosted glass in the background. This kill is super effective. In a nod to the first Halloween, where PJ Souls thinks that the man under the bedsheet is her boyfriend, Late Nurse has her back turned, and she speaks to Michael as if he is Bud. Forget it, Bud. Have to go back to work. You want to go for breakfast later? However, this scene misses the target by not playing up Michael's silence as a cue to late nurse that something's off. Not even sucking on Michael's fingers tipped her off. And if you think that's because Michael's hand may still be clean after doing many murders over the course of the night, I've got news for you, and better yet, let's hear it from the warlock himself. And- she puts her thumb in my, in my thumb in her mouth and sort of nibbles on my thumb. And I had to apologize to her because my hands were filthy. <laughs> I mean, so filthy. this is kind of improv. You didn't expect that it, to happen. I didn't expect that at all. She didn't do it in rehearsal or anything. The temperature of the hydrotherapy tub skyrockets past 120 degrees Fahrenheit as Michael dunks late nurse's head underwater several times. <laughs> She finally passes. He tosses her to the ground and we see her face one final time, blistered wonderfully. And I mean that like, really good job by the production team here. Every time she comes out of the tub, you see her face get progressively more damaged and the final product looks quite good. Points and also points to the sound design in this scene. I really like how the sounds of the kill fade into the background as all the other sounds from the surrounding atmosphere are heightened along with the soundtrack itself taking over. It gives this death some power in a horrifying way. It almost puts you in late nurse's ears as the world around her, and via proxy, around you, comes to an end. The scene cuts from a close-up of late nurse's face as we join Loomis and Deputy checking out the break-in at the school. There is a childish drawing of a stick family holding hands on the teacher's desk. Something I never thought of before just came to mind. Shouldn't there be three kids in this drawing? Anyways, the sandwich cutting knife is stuck through the little girl in the picture into the desk. We then see writing in fresh blood on the wall. What's this? It's gibberish. No. It's a Celtic word. Samhain. It means the Lord of the Dead. The end of summer. The festival of Samhain, October 31st. Dr. Loomis? Yes. 
I have to talk to you. Loomis is pulled into the hallway and informed that he has been ordered back to Smith's Grove for PR and funding reasons. Of course, his business is not done here, but with a marshal waiting for him outside, he doesn't have much of an option. Cue to a security guard at the hospital where we see Myers heading down a hallway. Inside of Lori's room, we see that Jimmy has once again stopped by. He informs the awake, but once again comatose like Lori, that he won't let anything happen to her. And how epically he will not follow through with that promise. It's, well, it's, it's disappointing, I suppose. Earlier, I said I had a theory about Jimmy to help explain some of his behavior in this movie. He is older than Lori, and therefore, he might be old enough to know what must be a town secret about Lori, and a certain relationship to Michael that you may have picked up on by now. Or you just know from watching this movie. Realizing the comatose state that Lori is in, Jimmy rushes to get a nurse, and she rushes to get the doctor. She finds the doctor staring at a fish tank. Dr. Mixter, it's Lori Strode. She's had a reaction to the medication. You better come quick. Dr. Mixter. She spins his chair around to see that he has been murdered. As she backs up in shock, a mask slowly appears in the darkness right behind her. Sticking a needle in her, causing her to lose consciousness. She falls to the ground. Fun fact, in filming this scene, the nurse did her own stunt and someone forgot to move a desk far enough away and she hit the desk, receiving a pretty large gash right along the side of her eye. She was asking the director to just keep filming to use that shot, but he and I assume also Dick Warlock stopped filming to get her medical aid as quickly as possible. Before cutting to the next scene, Michael does his famous head tilt, but the impact isn't the same as it was in the first movie. That said, this helped to cement the head tilt as a defining trait of Michael's. Cut to Lori's room again, and a different nurse now has joined Jimmy to help find out what's wrong. Jimmy runs out of the room to find the head nurse because these nurses don't know how to nurse. While Jimmy is away, another patient room alarm blares from across the hall. So this nurse that's watching Lori, you're supposed to be, goes to take care of that patient, and as she heads off to that room, we transition to a point-of-view shot as someone makes a V-line towards Lori's room. Michael enters, scalpel in hand. He raises the scalpel and strikes down multiple times. However, between the sound of the strikes and the lack of blood, he realizes he has been duped. Lori quickly became non-comatose, apparently, and pulled the classic put-some-pillows-under-the-sheets trick before. Transition to her limping down the hall in her escape. The nurse on her floor finishes up in the other room and heads to Lori's room only to find she is missing. We see Lori once again making her way down the hall, and it is tough to tell if she is actually making an escape or if she is just in a trance-like state. As we see things through her eyes, her vision is blurred and... I think it's safe to assume a bit of both. Lori ends up passing out in a different room. Safe. For now, we transition back to the school as Deputy Loomis and his co-worker leave. We'll find him. Where you got him left? I don't know. Neither do I. 
Loomis rides off back to Smith's Grove Sanatorium with the marshal and lady. Cut back to the hospital as we see more footage from the security camera as our last nurse finds herself near Michael. A hand comes up from behind her. and spooks her. Jimmy apparently knows that Lori is missing, so these two split up to find her, and wisely, Jimmy instructs the nurse that if she doesn't find Lori, to leave and find help. Unfortunately for them, Michael is close by, and he does overhear the plan. A little note about him being close by, Michael is very often seen in the background of scenes in this movie, and Rick Rosenthal really likes it as he comments on it regularly, as if they had just turned around or been more aware they would have seen him. To me, however, it comes off like a cheap imitation of the stalking in the first movie. It's all much more blatant and obvious in this one. This will be a deduction to my enjoyability rating, as it's not exactly an issue with cinematography, and in fact, a lot of the shots look really cool. Jimmy comes across the nurse that Michael took out in the doctor's office. I think it's her, but honestly, I'm questioning that now. Regardless, it's absolutely horrific how Michael ended her life by draining her body via a slow blood drip, which drips onto the floor. Fun fact, the production team created this large eight foot by eight foot pool of blood originally, and after a lot of hard work, that had to be scrapped as it was far too much blood to have any realism to it. There is still a significant puddle, however, which causes Jimmy to slip, hit his head, and get knocked out. There are some really nice touches cinematically and from the production team in this scene. Points. In the meantime, the remaining nurse has followed Jimmy's instructions and gets out to her vehicle. I know what you're thinking, but in a movie that made sure to account for almost everything, to an extent, they accounted for this. Her tires were slashed and there is fluid pouring from out under her car. Seeing this, the nurse is concerned, duh. So she starts to head back and she sees that this was done to all of the other vehicles as well. So she, uh, she runs and gets help. No, she, she heads back inside. Not duh. Cut to Lori, now awake and crawling out from her hiding spot into the hallway. Slowly, she gets up to her feet. The nurse comes across her and gets her attention just in time. <laughs> When the shoes fall off, you know they're dead. It's science. The nurse's shoes falling off at the end of her kill is a truly great touch in the movie. It is comedic, it's horrifying, and it fits into the pacing with the soundtrack nicely. It kicks things into gear. The chase is on. It's nearly teleporting Michael versus can barely walk and stay awake, Laurie. Who will win?
Who will win? Who will win? Who will win? The chase is on. It's nearly teleporting Michael versus can barely walk and stay awake, Lori. Who will win? After about two minutes of that low-action, intensely scored chase, Lori sprints out of the doors of the hospital into the parking lot before slowing down to a limp. She finds a car that she is able to hide inside of, and then she peers out from her hiding spot like an idiot. Just run, Lori. Run. Lori. 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 Cut to Loomis being escorted. Dr. Loomis, I think there's something else you should know. You see the blackboard back there in the elementary school? Yeah. In order to appease the gods, the druid priests held fire rituals. I do love to hear your exposition, dear doctor, but she just told you that there is something else you should know. Don't you think this might be a good time to listen? Isn't that your job? Prisons of war, criminals, the insane, animals were burned alive in baskets. By observing the way they died, the druids believed they could see omens of the future. Two thousand years later, we've come no further. Samhain isn't evil spirits. It isn't goblins, ghosts, or witches. The unconscious mind. We're all afraid of the dark inside ourselves. Dr. Loomis, please listen to me. There's a file on Michael Myers that nobody knew about. I've seen everything. No, no, it was hidden, sealed by the court after his parents were killed. Now, after the governor heard what happened tonight, he authorized Dr. Rogers to open it. What file? It isn't fair. They should have allowed you to examine everything. Well, would you just get along with it and tell us what the hell was in that file? That girl. That strode girl. Uh Uh-huh. That's Michael Myers' sister. Say what? That's Michael Myers' sister. I agree with the majority that this was a stupid path for the writers to go. I prefer Myers without a motivation. And this motivation doesn't really make much sense. While I'm at it, I'd like to pull back on some of my commentary on Michael's behavior in the first movie, like when he is disguised as a ghost. I am rethinking my position on that because Michael has plenty of forethought in a lot of ways, with his moving of bodies to different locations, etc. No, 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 stop it! Little something I wanted to bring up. Bad form! Sit down now, let's resume the game. Loomis puts everything together, and with his trusty handgun, he forces the marshal to head to the hospital. What does you fellas usually do? Fire a warning shot, right? <laughs> Cut to Lori hiding in the passenger footwell of the vehicle when Jimmy nonchalantly hops into the driver's side in a play on the audience's expectations. Stunned at what she's seen, Lori notifies Jimmy of her presence, but he is clearly not all there after his head injury. In another nod to the first movie, Jimmy passes out and notifies the whole town of their whereabouts as his head lands on the car horn. 
This is Jimmy, epically failing at protecting her. Lori jumps to action, removing his head from the horn, and in a full voice, she attempts to wake him up, but to no avail. She abandons the car, and, once again, she can't seem to walk well or move quickly like she could moments before. Face first onto the pavement, she exits the vehicle. She sees Loomis and crew pull up to the front doors of the hospital, crawling towards them. Helpless to fend for herself, she musters. Of course, they already entered the building once she had found her voice again. Like the cat that he is, Michael is taunting and playing with his prey. At some point, he had exited the building and walked all the way to the end of the parking lot, near this cool red light that makes him look extra evil, and he waited for the perfect time to scare Laurie from a long ways away. So that way he could really savor her fright as he casually strolls towards her, points to the cinematography, negative to the writing. Although moments earlier, the others had just walked through these same front doors, for some reason, Lori cannot get in. I know they didn't lock the doors. I replayed it and watched it. So banging and screaming at those inside, just in the nick of time, they let her in. Michael walks through these glass doors with ease, and with five shots, Loomis puts Michael on the ground. In case anyone has issue with Loomis not having one more bullet in the finale, recall that he used one in the car with the marshal, and for the first time, he forgot to make sure he has all of his bullets. The marshal walks up to Michael's body before Loomis is like, Whoa, bro, he's still breathing. Get away from his body? The marshal is a dumbass, though, and decides to inspect the body while Loomis is distracted, checking in on Laurie. Get away from him! But he stopped breathing! No! Michael just won't die. He isn't human. I'm going to leave this off here with you to find out how the finale plays out in case you've listened on without ever seeing the movie. Maybe the one of you. Um, What I will say is that it ends in quite the bang, which is supposed to, to bring the franchise to an end. It also makes some things about Halloween 4 seem quite silly, but we'll get to that in two more years or... Maybe I'll do two next year. There are two different versions to the ending of this movie. One which was Rick's version and one that was what we see, the final cut, what was released in theaters. This is another thing that I will be getting to, and I think I can say soon-ish instead of later now. In either version, this movie ends on the same song that it began with. Meh. What's your favorite scene, dudes? It's the climax of the movie that I didn't cover, in part because there aren't too many spectacular scenes or moments, and also because it is pretty cool and well done. The tears of blood from Michael Myers are really cool looking, and I think that the imagery and the symbolism of that are both fascinating. I do have a nominee that I'd also like to mention. When the nurse discovers that the the doctor is dead, I think they did the slow reveal of Michael Myers from the pitch black background better than the moment it's mimicking in the first movie. It's beautifully done. That was totally dope. What do you say that we get down in technical, if you know what I mean? 
I think now is a good time to give a little more insight into the pre-production of this movie, which is at the heart of this stuff, well, it's part of it, that I have referenced to that I'll talk about later several times. Let's start with Carpenter's Halloween, which was supposed to be an enclosed story. As far as I recall, John and probably Deborah resisted for some time on making a sequel. However, money speaks volumes. Story goes, John was very much struggling with the script, coming up with the plot and just the entire thing, I'm sure. With the courage of a few beers, John says, fuck it, as he inserts, Lori is Michael's sister, and I assume the Sawin crap as well, although I was unable to confirm whose input that that was. And let's be honest, in the 2018 sequel to Halloween, titled Halloween, they also struggled to get Michael Myers in a rematch with Lori, and frankly it's more ham-fisted in that movie than it is in this Halloween too. So, back to the script. Who knows who might alter the script from the point that John hands it into the executives to the point where Rick Rosenthal gets the script, where he does a single overhaul himself. The script goes from there back into the hands of the powers that be. Who knows what happens to it then, and eventually Rick gets a script back once it's approved, and that is what he films. Then after filming and editing, John must have gotten final say in his contract because he then cuts scenes and he reshoots new scenes before the movie is released to the audience. Too many cooks, not making the same dish. More drama and more details ahead. Let's rate this sucker first. In this section, I will be looking at seven different specific factors and rating them on a scale of 0 to 10. Five of those factors are the pillars of filmmaking, and two of them are additional categories that I feel are relevant to accurately rating a movie. You may notice I don't rate editing. I did at one point, but I found it only to overcomplicate things. Just know that I'm aware of the editing, and it does rear its head in one way or another through this process. Nothing is perfect. And that includes this system as well as my own consistency within my own system. I try. Let's start with the writing. Specifically, the good, where I have three points. First of all, the positions of characters in relation to Michael in the hospital. I think it all plays out um, believably, and the movie does a pretty good job of dictating who is where and where they're heading, and in part, that includes Michael. Number two, I like the use of the hissing sounds as a distraction in combination with the teamwork between Laurie and Dr. Loomis in the finale. And number three, fun clever detail, Dr. Loomis is a lighter thief. You can see he never returns a yellow lighter to the deputy who gives him a cigarette in order to light that cigarette. You may take notice of that same yellow lighter being used in the finale. Moving on to the bad, where I have four things. Number one. Lori, a marksman with the gun? Two bullets through two eyes. I don't know about that one. Number two, inconsistent Lori. I think I made it clear how up and down her physical state is throughout the movie. Number three, Ben Tramer, the boy who got blowed up and burnt, having the same outfit as Michael Myers. That's dumb. Michael killed a tow truck guy or a mechanic, whichever, probably both. And he took his uniform. A kid walking around with both the same uniform and the same mask is dumb. And the fourth item here, Director Rick is all about this imagery of the blood drip during Laurie's dream and the setup and payoff factor when it comes up later on in the movie. 
on a very literal level, it does pay off, but it pays off pennies on the dollar. It doesn't really make sense. Does Lori have some sort of psychic ability that she can see into the future and she could have warned Jimmy of the blood puddle? Even if that's the idea, it doesn't play out. I don't understand how it plays into the movie as a whole, rather than it being a random element he added because he liked the idea of it, versus the lighter setup which is very low-key and has an impact on the plot. He did say it makes you think, what is this all about? And I'll give him that, it, it makes you curious. And I missed at number five here, there's zero tension in this movie. Moving on to the mixed, where I have... Looks like three things. The motivations of non-Michael's characters, I think, are largely present and make sense, with the exception of Jimmy. You heard my theory for his behavior, but any evidence of that is just barely in the movie. Not enough to think that that was the intent of the writers. Jimmy also comes off as a little bit creepy. I have some excuses for this, but the writing is definitely partially to blame. Up next, number two. The motivations of Michael are also largely present, but not without issue. It's nice that he finds out information secondhand to better explain his movements slash how he finds out about certain things, but it's almost always very contrived plot conveniences that lead to these moments. And the third item, structurally, the script is actually pretty taut, which is a good thing, but the pacing gets messed with because it's so broken up in a few different ways story-wise, as well as in the cinematography slash editing of the movie. So, all in all, I can appreciate some of the things that the movie did well. However, even some of that may work to the movie's detriment. However, I know writing isn't all to blame for some of the issues that appear to be writing issues, like, for instance, the editing. So I'll give it a bump from a 4 to a 4.5 out of 10. Moving on to cinematography. Looks like I have one thing under the good. The lighting is very well done, and something of note is that a lot of the same crew from the first movie worked on this one as well. Although it is to a lesser extent, the plane with light and shadows is close to being on par with the first movie, and as I've brought up, even better on at least one occasion. In defense of this movie, they are often working with much larger sets that often have much more depth to them. For instance, the hallways. I think that makes the gaffer's job not only harder, but it also makes the end results stand out a little bit less, because there's more that the eye is taking in all at once. It's a theory. I have one thing for the bad. There is so much intercutting of scenes based on comments made by Rick. This doesn't seem like an editor's choice as much as a stylistic decision. And for the mixed, it looks like I have two things. Scenes like Michael being in the background while he's in that nursery are pretty much all well shot and they look nice. That scene, however, is one of the few that are understated and easy to miss Michael in, which is part of what makes the first a masterpiece and this movie an attempt at a recreation. Number two, one thing I brought a little bit of attention to was that at times we got point of view shots from Laurie's perspective. I think one of the things that Rick Rosenthal wanted to do in this movie was to put us in the victim's eyes and even in their ears, as I brought up during the hydrotherapy tub kill, to push the victim's perspective along with their respective emotions, similar to how John pushed the killer's perspective in Halloween, which of course is also continued in this movie. 
regardless of any musings as to how successful or more accurately not that Rick was in these attempts, I like the idea and some of the execution. When I try to parse everything out, I'm feeling like everything's around a 7 plus out of 10, but I'm going to include the issues that I have with the editing in the score a little bit, and I'll give the cinematography a 6.875 out of 10. Moving on to the sound design, one thing under the good, I'm tossing sound effects on and off screen, the ambient noise, the audio mix, including how clearly you can hear people's voices, and the creation of an atmosphere all together to simply say that they were all really well done. One moment that popped for me was the slip and thud of Jimmy. It's very impactful. An atmosphere. Looks like I have three things under the bad. The timing often feels off for the score and the stings. Too often, the score feels very manufactured, like the starts and the stops of it, due to that odd timing in scenes. The score never drives nor accentuates our emotional state before we've already peaked. This isn't always the case. In the hospital hallway, after the nurse's shoes fall to the ground, the chase score, which I love, is excellently timed in many ways. I am quite positive that there is a score from Hollow 18, which is titled The Shape Hunts Allison, that harkens back to this score. And actually, as a whole, I think Hollow 18 drew heavily from the alterations in the score that were made from Halloween to Halloween 2 in Hollow 18's own design. On to the next one, number two here, also in regards to the score. It is boring and or dull at times. Most notably, I find this to be true in the scene when Lori takes refuge in a random hospital room and she passes out. I don't know what it is about it, just boring. <laughs> Last for the bad, the piano from the original score is really missed in this movie. I have one item under the uh, mixed things and going back to the score as a whole, outside from those specific bads, co-composer Alan Howarth took what John Carpenter created for this movie, and as he explains it, via the process of overdubbing, meaning he left John's score intact, he layered in darker, more gothic sounds, giving texture to the tracks. He also gave it a rhythm, or in other words, a beat. I have aspects of this score that I love, that I find to be a welcome to change from the simplicity of the score in Halloween, and then those other issues with it. So, how to score the score? I'll start off by saying that the horribly timed sting in the score and the awkward entrance and ending of the soundtrack is going to negatively impact the score pretty heavily. I'm going with a straight 5 out of 10 for the sound design. It is little details that have big negative effects on that score. Moving on to acting. Starting off with Dr. Loomis, I don't like or dislike Donald's portrayal any more or less than the first. It feels like a natural progression of events. Dick Warlock as Michael. In the commentary, Rick states that one of the reasons he liked Dick Warlock as Michael Myers was because of his walk. Rick describes it as a glide and then it's almost ethereal or like his feet aren't even touching the ground. I find myself agreeing from the waist up. However, when we see the full body, it just feels like someone walking abnormally slow, so I am a little bit mixed on Michael's gait in this movie. Something that Dick does that I always notice and appreciate 
comes when he is dunking the nurse into the water. Just prior to bringing her head out of the water for the last time, he does this little tug on her limp arm, which to me feels like Michael is checking for resistance to ensure that she is not faking her death. It's a really nice little touch, whether it's done with that intent or as part of communication between two actors, he gets credit for it anyways. On to the next item, when Michael swings at Laurie with the scalpel. Dick doesn't like that his hands are covering over his eyes, like he's kind of like he's in pain, and I have to agree. I've always found that to be silly. I am a mixed on Jimmy, but there is more good than not for him. I really like the deputy that uh, takes Loomis around town for the hospital staff and the first responders, lumping them in together. They're pretty darn uh, performances all around. For Jamie Lee, good. And the fact that I want to say that they didn't ask much of her makes me think very good. It's an effortless performance from her, and I cannot knock her acting for her character's inconsistencies. So... I'll go with a 6.66 out of 10. For my own safety, I won't reveal who brought that below a 7. Moving on to production design, and at this point, I think I just ignored the good, the bad, and the uh, mixed. So, three items. Number one, although for the most part, I feel like I am in the same town as the first movie, there is enough noticeably missing. There is a lack of the Midwestern vibe in many of the characters and the settings that Carpenter's Halloween had and it doesn't really feel like fall anymore. Considering they had a much larger budget, $2.5 million versus $325,000 for the first, that's disappointing. Little plus, all of the uniforms people are wearing feel very believable. Good job by the wardrobe department. It is mandatory that I state my opinion of this mask. Fun, well-known fact, this is the same mask as the mask in Halloween. Everyone has an opinion, and for me, I'm pretty neutral. It's less white than it is in the first, but uh, I think it works well in both. I brought up a fair amount of things during the walkthrough for the production. Overall, I like a lot of things, and I think the production crew did a good job with most things, with an honorable mention going to a certain explosion and fire in the movie. Really, really well done. Visually, at least safety-wise, maybe not so much. I give the production design a 7.35 out of 10. Moving on to my enjoyability rating. This movie is missing the same amount of character relatability from the first, evidenced by me not knowing who anyone is. From what I understand, the scene that I'm about to talk about was shot by John Carpenter. It is the scene when the nurse and her friend are talking about nothing as they approach their vehicle, right before Boombox Kid bumps into Michael Myers, which I know was shot by John. It feels apparent that this is a John Carpenter scene, as it is one of the only times that the dialogue between the nurse and her friend feels like the dialogue in Halloween. Little touches like that are missing from what we got. Or maybe they wouldn't have been necessary had we gotten the Rosenthal cut. Here is Rick talking about some of this. But, you know, it always comes down, I think, to whether you uh, root for people or you don't. And one of the great things about working with Jamie Lee was that here was this character, an actress and a character merging. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you just you just care about her and you're invested, emotionally invested. And I think that was one of her great trademarks. 
I find myself happy in assuming that Jimmy makes it out alive, sure, but I also think that Rick relied too heavily on this movie being a continuation from the first in regards to the audience rooting for Laurie Strode, who is hardly in most of the movie and is sleeping or only half there most of the time that she's on screen. Unfortunately, this movie feels more like a production, more staged, more purposeful, instead of feeling like we are bearing witness to horrible ongoing events or events that feel like that they could happen to us or someone that we know, which is something that Halloween thrived on. And the next critique here goes hand in hand with my issue on tension. Where is the urgency when Michael chases Laurie? He moves too darn slow. It's an okay movie. More often than not, I have fallen asleep for 30 or 40 minutes of the movie. The only thing, however, that like upsets me, I guess, or sticks out while I'm watching it is Laurie's inconsistent physical state. So, in part based upon my most recent viewing, where it actually flowed and moved along quicker than ever before for me, I'm going to give Halloween 2 a 5.05 out of 10 for its enjoyability factor. And the last thing that I will be rating before we get our score is, in comparison to all horror flicks, how does this movie rate? I know for sure that I compared Halloween to slasher flicks as a whole, and on that level, Halloween 2 is very middle of the road. When comparing it to all horror flicks, I feel that it's a little below average. I'll give it a 4.75 out of 10. It is worth watching as a double feature to Halloween. But if you don't have the time, or if you fall asleep during it, you haven't lost out on much. Alright, time for a quick recap. All out of 10. Writing, 4.5. Cinematography, 6.875. Sound design, 5. Acting, 6.66. Production design, 7.35. Enjoyability rating, 5.05. In comparison to the entirety of the horror genre, 4.75. We take all seven members of our cast and we toss them in one room together. We give her a little shaky shake. And my official podcast score is a 5.741, so a 5.74 out of 10 it is for Halloween 2. Does does that mean that Hubie Halloween got a better score than Halloween 2? It is close. I'll, I'll let you find that out on your own if you wish to. It's time for some totally tubular facts! I'll start off with the stuff that Dick Warlock informed me of. Dick, who had met and worked with Walt Disney, found out that Walt had plans to turn him into an actor along the lines of a Kurt Russell, who Rick was a stunt double for for over 25 years. Unfortunately for Dick, Walt passed away before making that happen, and those who took over at Disney didn't feel the same way about Dick. Second thing. The actress who played Norma Elrod was mentioned in both documentaries with much praise. Number three, Jamie wore a wig in this movie. Number four, Rob G. low-key references the movie Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which I have a review on, after asking Dick if he has any theories as to how the killer in horror movies always manages to get from one location to the next. 
And first of all, I loved Dick Warlock's answer to the question, which will bring us right into Rob G's reference of Leslie. Here he is. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. That's the way the writer wrote it. That's, yeah. what, <laughs> that's, that's what that's all about. Yeah. There, there are some modern day horror films that do answer that question. Uh, they do? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it on the commentary, but I will tell you after we're done. <laughs> one, one in particular really funny one that involves doing a lot of cardio. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. The writing's on the wall. I can read between the lines on that one. Yeah. I'm sure savvy genre fans will know which film I'm talking about. I'd like to mention to some of those folks who love their movie theories, more often than not, that is the answer. The writers did it out of necessity. There is no deep thought or backstory that they literally don't make any references to in the movie. Stop making shit up and calling it a theory. Now for the stuff that Rick Rosenthal and Leo Rossi informed me of. Number one, the hospital that was used in the film had two different interiors, which makes sense if you've ever seen the movie. Rick said that that complicated the shoot, and I would say that he did a good job with it because despite noticing that the interior is odd in design and quite literally has two different interiors, I never really questioned it. Number two, Dana Carvey is in this movie. He is a reporter's assistant who is wearing flannel with a matching blue vest and hat. You can see him twice in the movie, at the end when they load Lori into the ambulance and as they transition to the scene where Sheriff Brackett identifies his daughter. Number three, the crew averted a near disaster with the explosion and fire stunt in the finale. They also had zippers on the burn suit for Dick Warlock which obviously isn't good if those are touching your skin while there's an intense amount of heat heating them up. One last thing, which is from an extra feature called The Nightmare Isn't Over, and then on to the drama. Here is Dick Warlock explaining how he got the job as Michael Myers. I talked to her and she said, uh, go down and meet Rick, he's not at the end of the hall, Rick Rosenthal. So I started down this hallway and stopped and I looked in this office and there was just a desk, a chair, and this mask laying on the desk. Hmm. Going in, got the thing, and I put it on, and I walked to Rick Rosenthal's doorway, and I just stood there and looked at him. And he said, who are you? I didn't answer. He said, who the hell are you? And I kind of chuckled. I took the mask off. I said, hi, I'm Dick Warlock. I'm here for the job of so-and-so. Well, come here and sit down. So I went over and sat down. We had our little meeting. I got up to leave, and I had the mask in my hand. I turned back to him, and I said, is there any reason I can't play this guy? He kind of looked me up and down, and he said, Denver doesn't care, I don't care. So that's how I got the job. <laughs> and now it's time for the drama. Dun, dun, dun. Rick Rosenthal reportedly was not happy with what John did to his movie when John cut about 14 minutes of it and then entered some of his own reshoots into it. I'm going to bring you through this from my perspective, which begins with me noticing some of the oddities of the movie over the years. Things not always appearing to be followed through with, a few random-ish scenes, and noticing a few times that scenes had a slightly different aura about them. Examples I noted during the walkthrough were, number one, up through the scene where Michael kills the random neighbor of the Elrods, it feels like John Carpenter's Halloween, but after that moment, there is a different feel to the movie, and also that, that specific scene feels out of place. Now, not all of the beginning was shot by John Carpenter, but that neighbor scene was, and let's be real, up until that point in the movie, it goes like this. A recap of the first movie, followed by the classic Michael point-of-view steadicam, 
and being inside of the Elrod's house, which of course helps it to feel more similar to the first movie, which has plenty of scenes that take place in similar looking houses. The only thing that's not in lockstep with Halloween is Michael's lack of killing the dog and or the Elrods. But this random scene quickly enough ties the vibes from Halloween all the way through to this moment, which is about 10 minutes into the movie. Number two, the inconsistencies of Laurie being sedated, then being able to function fully, and then being sedated again. Number three, the nurse and her friend talking before she is late to work, which leads into the kid with the boombox bumping into Michael Myers. Number four, the nurse arriving late in regards to getting in trouble with her head nurse. Number five, Laurie Strode's parents not being able to be reached over the phone to inform them of what happened and where she is at. Number six, the hospital guard's scene where he dies. And lastly, number seven, there were two different endings to the movie, of which Rick's was changed to the one that was used. Obviously, that isn't something that could have stuck out to me. Just a reminder about that. I think I've mentioned this by now, but when I noticed something funky was going on was when I watched the director commentary and took notice that Rick wasn't saying things like, Now obviously in this scene, I wanted to give an homage to scene X from Halloween. I got the impression that Rick was trying to pass off stuff that he did as being completely original. And of course, he wasn't going to bash anyone or anything that happened. He is professional, and burning bridges isn't typically wise. So up until some point, either midway through the commentary or later than that, I sort of thought this Rick dude is a hack who doesn't want to recognize the influences behind a lot of his work. After reading between the lines of some of what Rick says and noticing some patterns, little yellow and red flags were popping up. I recall the moment where these sirens went off in my head, that there was more to this complete lack of talking about Halloween, and that moment was when Rick was talking about the two endings. He didn't know which one was going to be used on the Blu-ray that I own, so leading into the ending, he has alluded to the different endings a few times, and when he realizes which one is being used, very professionally, he explains that, in Hollywood, the director doesn't often get to make their vision. There are decision makers and investors that are typically higher up than the director when it comes to the final say on things. Not word for word there. Rick was so professional about his qualms with the final cut of this movie that I don't have a single clip from his commentary that I thought to write down and timestamp to record for your listening pleasure. I'm sure going back I could pick out those yellow and red flags if I were making one of those three-hour deep-dive YouTube videos on the topic, but I'm only making what I can assume at this point maybe a two-hour episode, then again, I don't know, maybe it's five hours at this point. So, now I'm on full alert, and up next is Dick Warlock's commentary track. It must have been right out of the gate that Dick makes some sort of commentary that caused me to write down the following note. What's interesting is that while shooting this film, it is rumored, or maybe it's fact, that John was working on some alternate scenes for the TV version of the movie. Something about that which comes into play with all of this is that it sounded to me like it was one of Dick or Rob G that stated during filming. We know for a fact that there was filming done in post by John, but during seems less of a fact. Here's where some speculation comes into play. Rob G then brings up and asks Dick about the fact that he has noticed stark differences in some of the kills from one version to another, that being the TV version compared to the theatrical cut. However, Dick... 
Dick. 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 However, Dick doesn't remember shooting any alternate kill scenes. My speculation being that if John was already filming some stuff while Rick Rosenthal was filming, he would have needed to use someone else as Michael, or as Michael's hands, or the back of his head, etc. Which would explain Dick Warlock not remembering filming said different kill scenes. Some evidence for this is the fact that we also know that John has to make a cut of the film that is made for broadcasting on television. And given the brutality of some of the kills in this movie, it makes enough sense that John may have known some things he would need to film for that cut prior to ever seeing Rick's cut of the movie. A reasonable explanation that opposes this speculation would simply be that the scenes that Rob G notices differences in are just different camera angles of the same shots. With that in mind, let's jump to over 40 minutes later in the commentary track when something stood out to me which formed and I think gives credence to that speculation. Here's Dick. Now that last sequence with the with um with those two kills um was was that shot by Rick or John? Those two kills? That was Rick. Yeah, Rick. Okay. Cuz yeah. throughout the years a lot of I think it's been exaggerated. I I know there is two or three things that were that John had shot, but over the years, the rumors have kind of um, exaggerated to the point that, like, oh, John's the one that shot all the kills. No. Um, no. So. The one outside to- that house when I walk and go in the lady's house and cut her throat when she gets off the phone, mm-hmm. or when she's talking on the phone, that one. that That's the only kill that I remember him doing. Okay. Well, now the record is straight. Well, that's my memory, my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Maybe I'm reading between the lines too much, but that last little bit of commentary seems... suspect. The next significant unfolding of events for me came from the Making of Halloween 2 documentary where I hear that Deborah and John weren't happy with the director's cut and had hired a man named Skip Skulnick to cut and edit Rick's movie as well as do the editing for uh, the made-for-TV version. So this information comes from Skip. Along with John, they cut 14 minutes from the finished Rick Rosenthal movie. Then John wrote new scenes that were shot later on. And I believe, not for the first time, it is verified from another source that this includes the scene where Michael kills the random younger neighbor of the Elrods. Now, at this point, I'm actually still on John's side, and Skip only strengthens the reason behind why I am on his side, thinking that John probably did nothing but improve the movie when Skip says that he felt that what John added to the movie amplified some character development and helped to keep the movie moving along. I would also find out from Skip that the scene where Michael finds out Lori's location was one of the scenes that John had added, the boombox kid scene. So... We're getting down to the last remaining special features, deleted scenes as well as the alternate ending, and even better, they have director commentary for both of them. First, I watch each without the director commentary. With all of this new knowledge, I'm pretty sure I have a good handle on what Rick Rosenstahl movie may have looked like and some of what I'm expecting to see in the deleted scenes, and I wasn't necessarily wrong. Following are the two notes that I wrote while watching the deleted scenes and the alternate ending. I believe they're both just from the deleted scenes, though. As I suspect, based on the director's commentary about preferring his alternate ending to the movie, 
I was not surprised to see a fair amount of Jimmy and Lori scenes in these deleted scenes, which I think it was wise to remove from the movie. On the other hand, something lost from the movie with these scenes being cut is a better explanation for Lori's physical state. It's very erratic in the final cut, but here they show or tell of a few times where she gets sedated again. My second note. The storeroom scene also becomes more of the plot instead of a random kill, with these scenes included. So next up was for me to watch these with the director's commentary, where I think Rick got a little more candid than he was during the movie's commentary. Here are the notes I wrote down from this viewing. Number one. Rick talks about a concern there was with the middle of the film being boring or drawn out as well as there being a lot of chefs in the kitchen, which leads to the following comment about a storyline that was cut, which is a good chunk of these cut scenes. Um, my idea was to see the hospital kind of gradually uh, revealed and uh, the empty hallways, and then at some point, um, things, would, things would go further amiss at the hospital. And the uh, handyman would disappear, and then the lights would go out. And, um, and I always like that. I think I agree with you, Rick. I think that would have followed more in suit with the first film, which takes its time as things unravel. He also brings up something that I was thinking about as an issue that I have with this movie, because it is such a follow-up to the first and because Laurie is hardly in it. Rick felt that his job was to establish these other nurse characters more. And I am in agreement with that. It's an issue with this film, as you can tell from my walkthrough, where I don't really know their names or care enough to find them out. He does verify that he wanted to develop Jimmy and Lori's relationship, and the more and more that I think about the version of the movie he intended to make, I am sliding to his side of the argument. And then the next note that I wrote... Rick also brings up the word tension among the staff at the hospital and just in general at the hospital, and I agree with him when he says that that is lost in the final cut, and another reason why I would be very interested to see his cut of the movie versus what we got. There is one more piece to the twisted metal that the creation of Halloween 2 was, which is that some of the folks that were supposed to be involved in Halloween 2 backed out because they either didn't like the script or they didn't like how it diverged from the essence of Halloween. That in large part manifesting in the use of gore in Halloween 2. John Carpenter's argument was that the imitations of Halloween and in general the horror genre had changed, and in order to keep up with the times, Halloween 2 would need to change too. When the imitated becomes the imitator. So, John is actually the one responsible for much of the amped-up gore in this movie in one way and another, aside from the needles. I don't know if those were part of John's script or not, but I do know that Rick is enthusiastic about the regular imagery of the needles. So, now that you largely understand what I do and are aware of my position, that John Carpenter's final finagling of this movie may very well have actually made it worse, and that he's the one who wanted to amp up the gore from the first movie. It is evident that there were competing visions for this movie between Rick and John, and strangely enough, it is Rick who wanted to keep more of the essence of the first Halloween than John. If you recall, Rick would have had one of the final passes of the script before it was approved, so I am sure John was on some level a part of that final approval. And at that stage in the process, it probably doesn't make sense to ruffle too many feathers if the others involved in approving the script like what they see. What I am musing here is that Rick very well probably altered John's script to be more like Halloween in tone and pace compared to the original script that Rick received from John. 
I am basing this off of what I know that John removed from the movie. Then in post, John may have pushed his vision through what he cut from the movie and what he added into it instead of arguing over the script earlier on. So the stage is set. Let's go back to those examples and see what this movie may have been had we been able to see most of one man's vision like we were able to see in the first Halloween, which had little or no artistic oversight from its investors. Something that John did not afford Rick, which in all fairness, John had all the right not to afford Rick that same freedom. Number one. Michael doesn't kill the Elrods or the dog. We're in Carpenter's film. He did kill the dog and pretty much everybody he came across once he starts killing. I think the intent was to set the tone for this movie that Michael was now on a mission to find and kill Laurie, which works and makes sense until number two. Michael randomly kills the Elrod's neighbor, which we know for a fact John added after Rosenthal was finished. Ultimately, it's out of place in this movie. Number three. Laurie sometimes being sedated and sometimes being fully functional without any reasons shown on screen. This gets fixed in the few minutes of deleted scenes alone. It's probably still not perfect in Rick's version, but it's 100% less random and distracting. Number four. Michael Myers hears Laurie's location on the radio. I have no issues with John finding this to be important as it was reportedly missing from Rick's cut. Number five. The nurse arriving late in regards to getting in trouble with her head nurse. This gets played up a fair amount in the movie, and although the simple act of her getting in more trouble than she does in the final cut isn't that important, in the larger picture, and based on what's seen in the deleted scenes, it's character building, and it helps us to get to know the hospital staff and their interwoven relationships with one another better, which would help us to relate to them better. I only shared a little bit of this, but Rick wanted there to be a lot of tension at the hospital, and part of that was supposed to be between members of the staff. Also, some of that tension would have been created when the power goes out on them, which was a moment that got removed from the movie. Then to compound that tension, that staff is supposed to be unable to slash scrambling to locate the hospital guard, whose five-minute-long death scene is, in and of itself, One of the issues with this cut, it goes nowhere and it has no impact on the plot, but it could have. Number six. Laurie Strode's parents not being able to be reached. This is the most minor of all, but there is a little bit more to this storyline in Rick's cut, and it is not that I find it to be a crucial missing factor. It's more that it feels ignored in the cut that John gave us, and a bit out of place when it just goes nowhere. Number seven, I'm also going to toss in Rick's attempts at putting us in the victim's shoes, which may have worked better in his cut. There appeared to be a little more of that being done in the deleted scenes, so had it been carried through the film more consistently, maybe it would have worked. Number eight. Two different endings. In the original ending, there was one last scare inside of the ambulance where Jimmy... The medic pops up with the sheet still over his face before revealing that it's him and not Michael Myers. In the ending we got that is removed, it is just Laurie Strode in the ambulance alone. Fun fact, due to that being cut from the film, some people say that Jimmy died, but I find that to be unlikely as well as clearly not the original intent. Rick claims that no one knows who changed the final scene, not even himself. 
but I'm pretty certain that that was just Rick being professional and not wanting to say something that he shouldn't. As you can tell from some of my verbiage, I have my mindset that that was John's decision. And finally, Lance, the actor who played Jimmy, said that he thinks the theatrical cut's ending, the version without him in the final scene, is better. And I agree. At the very least, I agree for this cut. I am going to hedge that and say that the alternate ending may have worked well in Rick's version. In conclusion, I would be interested to see Rick's cut of the movie, and I think that there is a greater than 50% chance that I would enjoy it more than the version that we got. Of course, that is tough to say without truly knowing what all John added into the movie and all you know, all of what was removed. Everyone involved did their darndest to prevent the middle section of the movie from being a long, slow drag, and I think they failed. The entirety of Carpenter's Halloween is a long, slowly paced movie, so maybe they'd have been best to embrace that for Halloween 2. That is all that I've got. I love you. You love you. And check your candy, kids. You wouldn't want a razor through your tongue. Oh, snap, dude. That was like a hell of a good show. <laughs> we totally hope that you had a banging time as well. And we'd appreciate it if you followed us on any or all of our social media. <laughs> you can even donate to help us improve. Alright, what the fuck?